We're going to be in Acts 16 this morning, if you want to find that in your Bibles, as we continue to try to seek a deeper understanding of the worship that God deserves, that he's worthy of, and the kind of worship that Scripture commands, the the kind of worship that God says we are to give him as his followers. And I want you to just be honest with me for a moment as we get started this morning. Do you ever just wake up on a Sunday and you just really struggle to feel like coming to church? You can admit that it's okay. I'm giving you permission to say yes because I would raise my hand with you. You say, well, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to feel like that. Oh, but I do. There are some weeks that it is a struggle to want uh, to even come. And as, and as difficult and as weird as that may sound coming from me, I know that if I feel that way that every single one of you have wrestled with and had those feelings before. Um, and there's lots of different reasons for that. Sometimes we struggle to come, but then even in our faithfulness, if we decide to just pull ourselves up and come and be here, then it's a whole other thing to really feel like you're a part of it. You ever been that way before where you're able to get yourself here, but once you get yourself here, you just can't get into it. And maybe there's, that's a lot of reasons that we feel that way. Sometimes it's just pure physical exhaustion. Sometimes you've had a busy week. Your job has been demanding. The, the responsibility of your families has been demanding. And you come to church on Sunday and you just feel like you have no energy left. Your mind is preoccupied with lots of different things that are happening outside of here. And, 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 and it's hard. It's hard for you to focus your minds on things. Uh, sometimes you come into church and you just, you just had a bad morning. Right? I hope that this hasn't been one of those mornings, especially for our moms. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can't get the kids out of the bed. They won't get dressed. They won't take their shower. They won't brush their teeth. They're fighting with each other. And you just want peace in your house because we want to come together and we want to go to church and love God. (laughs) So get your act together. We're going to church. (laughs) Right? Come on. Like, help me help you, please. Kids won't get up. It's a battle to get everybody out the door. Once you get in the car and you get here, somebody says something in the car, right? Somebody says something a certain kind of way, and then that conversation of, well, what does that mean? Well, what are you talking about? And then argument breaks out in the car on the way to church. How often does that happen? Like, it's cats and dogs, and sometimes it goes past the kids. It's just mom and dad. Mom and dad, husband, wife. You are on each other constantly all the way. And then something happens when you hit the parking lot. There's a switch. That's right. There's a switch that gets flipped and you got to turn it on, right? Because you got to the church and and you get out of the car and everything is just blessed, (laughs) isn't it? Everything is just peaceful and great. That happened to Kim and I on a Wednesday night. I remember specifically, we still talk about it. We were living in Garden Lake still and we were driving across town on the way here and Tyler was a toddler, Ben was an infant, he wasn't even talking, but we were in the car, and we were fussing, fighting about something, and it was on, all the way here, 
And some of y'all think, oh, I've never, I can't imagine. People say that to me sometimes. Like, oh, I can't imagine you and Kim, y'all are so sweet. I can't imagine. Y'all, you just don't live in my house. <laughs> That's the only reason you don't see it. It's because you don't live in my house. It's, it can be bad. So <laughs> we're coming, and we are just, we are just button heads. It's, it's bad. And we pull in the, we pull in the parking lot, and we get in our spot, and it's time to go in and Go to get Wednesday night. We were doing Wednesday night supper, and then we we're kind of going and eat supper. So we're just going to end this. And you open the car door, and it clicks. That's right. It's, it's good to be here, isn't it? Oh, and somebody walks by. How you doing? Hey, guys, how are y'all? It's good to see y'all. Man, y'all had a good week? Good, good. Yeah, it's good. So you click, you turn on, and, but, but what happened? was Tyler was just old enough to talk to tell on us. And so somebody, we got out of the car, and we go getting out of the car, and they say, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? We're like, we're good, we're good, how are y'all? And Tyler says, oh, my mommy and daddy were fighting. <laughs> he just told the truth, straight up, right to them. And we just looked at each other and kind of grinned, and, and we looked at him and said, yeah, we just finished yelling at each other on the way here. Uh, we're sorry. And... Uh, but you have those days, right? And it's just a struggle to come in and, and get your mind uh, set for what you've come here to do. Sometimes, sometimes you come to church and maybe you're anticipating worship. You're anticipating church is going to be good. And then Dan just picks bad songs. <laughs> right? You ever, you ever walked out saying that to yourself? Well, the music just didn't do it for me today. I was expecting this and this. and Or you sing the first song because we don't print them in the bulletin anymore. So you can't, you can't look ahead and see what songs and make up your mind already whether it's going to be bad or not. You just have to wait, right? We do that on purpose. Um, you have to wait. And then you get to the first song, oh, well, I don't really like that one. And you just say, oh, I don't like that one either. Dadgum, are we going to sing any songs that I like in church this morning? I don't like any of these. Um, or maybe you're too distracted by the aesthetics of the room. You may be kind of ADD and you come in and you're sitting and you're looking around and you're like, what color is this wall? I don't, I can't, I don't know. I, I, I can't decide what color this wall is. You know, some of these, these blinds on the windows, like some of them are folded up and some of them are folded down. And I just want to go and fix them all. Like put them all in the same direction. The lighting in here is weird. Um, you know, it's just, you know, like we're so distracted by the aesthetics of the room, the paint, the seating. We look at the, every time we sit down, the pew creaks. You know, that wood creak. And we're like, oh man, I can't. And, and, and so all of these things we wish were different. And then let's just be honest. Sometimes we come into church and we're just overwhelmed by the weight of life, right? Life has just been hard. It's been hard the previous week. It's hard right now. And you come in and, and you're just carrying a lot. And it's really, really hard. Tragedy is going on in your life. And it's really, really hard to come in and find the perspective you need to tell God how great he is when Everything in your life is hard, and everything's bad. I'm pretty sure at some point all of us have dealt with at least one or more 
of these reasons that would make it difficult for us to come into God's house as God's people for the purpose of worship. And what's scary is that we can come together for that purpose, knowing that that's why we've come here. And for all of these reasons, we can come for the purpose of worship and we can leave having never even come close to worshiping God. And all of those things that I just talked about, whether they're, they're mental, physical, emotional, whatever they are, we can sum them all up in the word circumstance. Worship and circumstance. That's what I want us to think about this morning. I've got one big point today. This isn't one of those multi-point sermons. Uh, I almost went there, but I'm like, no, we're, if, you, if you leave out of here with one good principle, that, then that's, that's what our goal is today. But here's a question I want you to ask yourself this morning, all throughout the story that we're going to read in Acts 16. Here's the question. How might I allow circumstances to dictate my worship of God. If you come and we gather together as believers for the purpose of giving our worship to God, this morning I want us to consider how might I allow the circumstances in my life to dictate how, when, or if I actually fulfill the purpose of worship. I want us to look in Acts chapter 16, and there's so many sermons we could preach from this story, but we're going to look at the first part of the story, and then I want us to just hone in on one specific part. So Acts 16, starting in verse 16, this is the Apostle Paul, uh, his partner in ministry Silas, and a group of other believers um, that were together, The Luke. Um, the, God, the author of the Gospel of Luke also is the author of Acts, and so Luke is writing. And he says in verse 16, Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation, are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, she, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them un into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Now, this is a pretty self-explanatory story. We're going to stop right here. And I love narrative 
stories like this in the book of Acts because it just tells the story and it's easy to go through and follow and understand. And there's, there's lots of details about this story that we could talk about, but I want, I, I, I want to read it in light of the question that I just asked you. How might I allow my circumstances to dictate my worship of God? Because if we're talking about a bad day, if we're talking about bad circumstances, this is worse than anything, I, this is worse than any day I've ever had. Now, I don't know about you, but Paul and Silas, if we notice in verse 16, it says that the group, they were on their way to pray. And if you go back to verse 13 in that chapter, we see that there was a place right outside, this is the city of Philippi. And right outside the gates of the city, there was a river. And this was a place that they had been before to go and pray. And we know that prayer is part of worship, right? So they were on their way to a time of worship. They were going to pray next to this spot at the river that they had already been to before. And they had kind of designated this as the place that they would go to pray. So on their way, they came under attack. And there are a couple of different kinds of attacks that we see. First, they came under a subtle spiritual attack. There was this young slave girl. And the Bible says she had a spirit. She had a demonic spirit. And that demonic spirit was giving her the ability to tell the future. To, to be a fortune teller. Now that should tell us something. I don't know what you think about fortune tellers. I don't know what you think about people like that. But this should tell you something, and this should, this should warn you not to mess with that stuff, okay? Because it's very clear in here that Luke says that this spirit, and, and Paul's response to this slave girl shows us that, that whatever was in her that was giving her the ability to do that, it was not from God. And Paul recognized that. But it's, what's strange is that she's not coming against them or she's not bashing them. She's actually saying things that are very true about them, right? I mean, what is she? She's following them around and she's saying, hey, these men that are telling you the way to salvation, they're really from the one true God. And she's following them around almost like she's heckling them, but she's, she's heckling them with the truth. Like she's proclaiming things that are true. And so... We might read that and go, well, gee, why didn't they just let her keep saying that? Because she wasn't lying. She was telling the truth. But there were a couple of reasons I think Paul was greatly annoyed. And I love that Paul was greatly annoyed. Aren't you? Doesn't that make you feel better? Because I see all kinds of stuff. I see all kinds of things that people say in the name of Jesus. I see things that people do in the name of Jesus, and I get greatly annoyed. <laughs> and it makes me feel good that the Apostle Paul was the same way. He looked at this, and he just got greatly annoyed for a couple of reasons. One, even though what she was saying was the truth, he knew that the source of what she was saying was from a demonic spirit. Paul was about preaching the true gospel. And he did not want the true gospel of Jesus to be associated with anything that was demonic at all. 
And so even though the words that were coming out of this girl's mouth were true, the spirit behind the words was demonic. And to protect the gospel, to guard the truth of the gospel, he knew that there, there, there was no, he didn't want anything to, to corrupt it. So he knew that this was a demonic spirit that was giving her this ability. And also there was, there was dishonesty associated with her because her owners were using her for profit. This was a prophecy for profit ring. And even though, again, what she was saying about them specifically was true, the power that was empowering her and the people that were gaining riches and, and, and dishonest gain from her, they were profiting. So it was a crooked scheme. And Paul didn't want the pure gospel that he was trying to preach associated with any of that stuff. We have to be careful, again, just a little extra commentary. We have to be very careful. Everybody that says good things about Jesus is not from God. We have to be very careful. And so this is why Paul was annoyed. And so he just turns, he stops. I don't know how many days it was, but it says that there were several days that he allowed this to happen. He was, he was, he was being patient, he endured it, but then he'd had enough and he just turns and he commands the spirit to leave her and it says immediately he was gone. But as soon as the spirit gone, so was her ability to tell the future. So was that ability for her to, to do the fortune telling. And by the time it got back to her owners, who were making money off of her ability to do that, that made them more than greatly annoyed. That made them angry because this was big business, especially in this culture. I mean, these kind of this is still big business today. It blows my mind how many how how much weight people will put on on these kind of people even in this culture and the amount of money they'll spend on this kind of stuff. It was the same way in this culture, especially among um, the the royalty, people who were in high positions of authority, people who were affluent, had had lots of wealth. To them it was it came in handy to know what the future was. And they, and they would come and they would pay big bucks, especially if they found somebody who could actually tell them things that they thought were true. These fortune cookie prophecies. And so this was how these guys were making all their money and all of a sudden it didn't work anymore because this girl had been delivered from that. She had been freed from that demonic possession that empowered that. So now... She's no good to them. And Paul just busted their piggy bank. So that made them angry. And so they come against them. And you see how he comes against them. So there was a subtle spiritual attack first through this demonic spirit in this slave girl. But then once Paul got rid of that, then there came a not so subtle physical attack by the men who owned her. As a slave, they brought false accusations against 
Paul and Silas and their friends, they said that they were riling up, that they were causing trouble in Rome. They were, they were saying that they were promoting something that was causing Romans to want to be disloyal to the government when they weren't doing anything like that. False accusations. And, and you see the way that the people who were mad at Paul and Silas, the way they came against them was they got the crowd going. Right? It doesn't matter if what you say about somebody is true or not. If you can get enough people mad, like you're mad, then it doesn't matter whether you're telling the truth or not. And that's what's happened. They got enough people fired up about it. They got enough people mad about it. And there's some people in this crowd probably mad, mad, and they don't even know why. They're just mad because everybody else is mad. But it, it was enough to cause a riot. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, you got to do something about these guys. Well, the magistrates weren't spiritual. These were just the government guys. These were the ones that were supposed to be keeping order because there were people above them that expected them to be able to keep, keep everybody in line. And when people got out of line and, pe- and, and everything got riled up, then they were going to get in trouble. So they didn't care about justice. They didn't care about doing what was right toward Paul. They just wanted to do whatever they had to do to get the crowd to calm down so that they could maintain control. So they took Paul and Silas and they threw them in jail. They ordered them to be flogged and beaten with rods. And this isn't like, when you you see beaten with rods, this wasn't like the hickory that your grandmother used to send you across the road to go pull out of the ditch and bring back and get whipped with. I I had that done to me a few times. I remember doing that. This is not that. This is way worse than that. These are are sticks and rods that would would grow and they'd be gathered together. They'd be wrapped up and tied together. And they would strip the victim and, and tie them to a pole or or, or strap them over a rock and just relentlessly beat them over and over. Almost to the point of death. To make an example of them. So after they beat them, after having done nothing wrong, then they take them to prison, tell the jailer, Look, you, you keep these guys. We don't want this crowd getting out of control. So it's up to you to make sure that you keep these guys under control. So he takes them, puts them in the innermost part of the prison, like the very middle where, where it's the hardest to get out. And then he puts their feet in the stocks. Now, you know what, I don't know if you know what stocks are. Um, stocks are those pieces of wood that you see that, that have holes, half holes cut in each one. And you'd put the victim's hands or feet through them and put the woods down over their ankles or their wrists and then they would lock those boards. Kind of like those things that your, your dad will pose at in Disney World. You know, with the hole and he sticks his head and his hands through and you take his picture and you think it's cute. Well, th- th- this is like for real. There's no way they can escape, no way they can get out. Actually, some things that I read said that when you put somebody in the stocks, rather than having their feet close together like this, they would be sitting and, and have them in front of them. They would take their legs and they would spread their legs apart. 
as far as they possibly could, and then they would rack each of their ankles in the stocks, and they would have to sit trapped like that after having been beaten within an inch of their life. So this is, this is what happened to them on their way to church. <laughs> kind of makes everything that I talked about already sound kind of silly in comparison, right? Now look at verse 25. This is, this is the crazy part. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. We would expect it to say, about midnight, Paul and Silas were crying. Paul and Silas were complaining. Paul and Silas were screaming out in anger. It says they were doing two things. They were praying and they were singing songs to God. I wish I knew what songs they were singing. Now, mind you, keep, keep in mind history. They weren't singing any of our songs. They weren't singing any songs that are in the hymn book, okay? So there's no way we, like, we, we don't know. Probably if they were singing anything, they were singing things that we would read in the book of Psalms. They were singing the Psalms. At midnight, in the middle of this innermost prison, beaten to death, they're singing and praying. Worship is taking place inside this cell. So here's big point, big idea today. Genuine worship transcends circumstances. If you want to know, if I want to evaluate for myself whether the worship that I'm bringing to God is really genuine, one of the characteristics of that is that it will come from me no matter what is going on around me. It will be consistent and it will be real and it will be true no matter what circumstances I'm going through. And you say, and, and I would say, how in the world do they do that? How does, how does that happen? How does verse 25 happen? This is why I think it happens. What you and I tend to do when we come to church or we get into a place where our goal is to worship, we will view God, we will respond to God through the filter of our circumstances. And in our minds, what we will say is, because my circumstance is this, that must mean that God is this. Like, fill, the, fill in the blank with whatever you want. Because my circumstance is blank, God is blank. If my life right now is hard, that means that God is, is hard. If I'm not experiencing a lot of mercy in my life, I will view God as being not very merciful. 
I, I will just allow whatever is happening in my life to shape the way I see God. And the way I see God is what prompts my worship. Because I'm responding, our worship is a response to who God is and what God does. But when I look at who God is and what God does through the filter of my circumstances, it alters my picture of God. And it turns him into something that he may or may not be. And so my response is wrong. What Paul and Silas were able to do is take that flow and make it go in the opposite direction. Rather than from me that my viewpoint goes through my circumstances to perceive the way God is, what Paul and Silas were able to do is they were able to see their circumstances through their perception of who they knew God already was. Instead of seeing God through the filter of their circumstance, what they were able to do was see their circumstance through the filter of the truth of who they knew God was. You see that? They flipped it. And so they knew that what was true about God was always true. My circumstances don't change God. If my life is bad, God is the same. If my life is great, God is the same. He he doesn't change with my circumstances. He doesn't change with my surroundings. He doesn't change when I come into church and I just can't get into worshiping him. He's the same every time. He's consistent. Can you imagine a discussion in in, in that cell between Paul and Silas that went like this. Well, you know what? I, we should, I would really love to worship God right now, Paul, but it's just too dark in here. It's too cold. Like the temperature in this cell is just, I can't, I can't worship in here. It's too dark. It's too cold. We don't have the right kind of instruments to make music. We can't, we can't worship in here. We don't have the right stuff. Or, or maybe I would really love to worship the Lord in this prison cell, but if, if it was a little cleaner, if it wasn't so nasty in here, then I could worship. Or, um, you know, these stocks that they've got our ankles in and this cobblestone floor is just really uncomfortable. How does God expect me to worship in this? Like that's, that's, that's not what we hear, and that's not what we would expect to hear. But do any of those things sound familiar? The kind of excuses that we will bring to God when we come for the purpose of worshiping Him and don't, We don't even hear them say, I'm hurting too badly. The whole world is against us right now. People want to kill us. We may die tomorrow. They may drag us out of here and and, and kill us in front of the whole city. I just can't worship right now. Life's too hard. We don't even see that. 
Like this is, this is where they are. But they are singing and they're worshiping. Paul wrote Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And then he says it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoicing is, is the vocal expression of joy. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when you're not too tired or you're not too sad or you're not too angry or if you're not too hurt. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Express the joy of knowing who God really is all the time. No matter what the aesthetics are, no matter what the circumstances are, because God's worthiness will always be greater than my desire to worship Him. You realize that God's worthiness for worship isn't determined by how into it we are. Just because I'm not into it at the moment doesn't make God any less worthy to be worshipped. So what I'm doing is excluding myself from the obedience to the command to worship God because he's worth it. And I'm taking myself out of that. His worthiness will always be greater than my desire. So when I understand this and I'm able to be faithful to say, God, I'm going to give you my worship even though my desire is lacking. I'm really struggling, God. I'm struggling wanting to say these things to you. I'm struggling feeling this way. I'm struggling with all of these things. But I'm going to be faithful to give you what you deserve. When that happens, we experience joy. And that's what rejoicing comes from. Here's the here's last thing. When our view of God controls our view of circumstances, the result will be joy. See, this is, this is part of what keeps us in that mind where we think we can't worship because we're looking at God through the circumstance. But if we can learn how to flip those things and we can begin to see our circumstances through the filter of what we know God's word says about him, what is always true, what is always constant, when I see my circumstances, this dark, dingy prison cell where I am beaten within an inch of my life and I'm trapped here and I don't know if I'm getting out alive, but I'm seeing all of these circumstances through the filter of a faithful, sovereign, loving God who I know is in control of everything and there's an eternal destiny waiting for me whether I live or die. In glory... I see my circumstances different. And even in the midst of those circumstances, I can still sing songs about how great God is because I can see him first. The result will be joy. The result will not always be happiness. Because let me just tell you, there's some, there's some of us who are dealing with some, some horrific pain. There's some of us, some of you that are dealing with the kind of pain that I've never dealt with before. And I can't really put myself in your place. And so I would never be arrogant enough to say something to you without the humility of knowing I, I, 
can't feel the way you feel. Happiness and joy are different things. And we've talked about joy already when we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, the capacity for joy is in you. That's, that's a part of the fruit that comes from the Spirit of God. And so joy is that thing that gives you a voice to be able to sing a song about the greatness of God in the worst circumstances. That doesn't come from happiness. There have been moments of worship that I've had in the midst of trouble where I'm crying my heart out in pain, but I'm still telling God how great he is and how those things can coexist together, I, I, I can't explain. But they do. Rejoicing is about joy. It's not always about happiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, again, this is the words of Paul, verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory the man that we just read about getting beaten and thrown in prison is the man who who wrote this we don't give up even though our outer person is being destroyed literally I'm being beaten physically and almost to the point of death my outer body is suffering so much. Paul endured shipwrecks. He endured hunger, starvation, physical beatings, being thrown in jail. He endured all of those things. And in the midst of that, he says, I don't give up because even though all of these outside circumstances are physically destroying me, there's something on the inside of me that's being renewed. There's something every day that comes from joy in my relationship with God that is, that is renewing me, giving me the power to get up every day and continue to do what God has called me to do. And it's renewed every day. Every morning when I wake up, it's something brand new. I don't know. It's, it's not from me. It's not from my body because that's wasting away. But there's something on the inside of me that is renewing that day by day. And see, look at how he's looking at his afflictions. You're talking about seeing, seeing our circumstances through the filter of who God is. Look at verse 17. What does he say about his, his circumstances? That they're momentary light afflictions. He's talking about the stuff we just read about in Acts 16. And when he remembers those things and goes back and thinks about those experiences, he calls them momentary light afflictions. You know why? Because he's got his mind and his heart and his eyes set on eternity. Everything that we go through in this physical world, if we're, if we're believers in Christ and we have the hope of heaven waiting for us, everything that you go through now is momentary. It doesn't matter if you've been dealing with it your entire life. Because when you see however many years God gives you on this earth, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, Stack that up against the first 10 million of eternity. With Jesus, it's light. 
and it's momentary. And so Paul could look at these horrible circumstances and call them light and momentary because he was seeing his circumstances through the filter of what he knew was true about God. So though I feel chained and in stocks to my circumstances, I know that I worship a God who is not chained. I know that I worship a God who is not bound by the same things that will bind me at times. My thought life and my circumstances and my family and, and, and anything that would seek to distract me and pull me away from worship. I know God is not bound by any of those things. So it doesn't matter what's going on around me. If I can see what's going on around me through the truth of who I know God is, I will always have a song to sing. Always. 